The judges play that role of convener or collaborator. I'm not a mental health expert. I defer to the Department of Mental Health. I defer to the docs on all my committees. I don't make mental health decisions, but I can get them to come to the table and work together. And that's what a judge in every single county can do. Welcome to Hope Starts With Us, a podcast by NAMI, the National Alliance on Mental Illness. I'm your host, Daniel H. Gillison, Jr., NAMI's CEO. We started this podcast because we believe that hope starts with us. Hope starts with us talking about mental health. Hope starts with us making information accessible. Hope starts with us providing resources and practical advice. Hope starts with us sharing our stories. Hope starts with us breaking the stigma. If you or a loved one is struggling with a mental health condition and have been looking for hope, we made this podcast for you. Hope starts with all of us. Hope is a collective. We hope that each episode with each conversation brings you into that collective to know you are not alone. Today, I'm joined by retired Justice Evelyn Stratton to talk about the critically important work of diverting people living with mental health conditions from the criminal justice system and ensuring that people experiencing crisis receive help, not handcuffs. This issue is core to NAMI's work at the national, state, and local levels. Far too many people with mental health conditions become entangled in the legal system and end up in jails and prisons. According to the Bureau of Justice Statistics, 37% of adults incarcerated in state and federal prisons and 44% locked in jails have a diagnosed mental health condition. 44% means that almost half of people in jail have a diagnosed mental health condition. That doesn't even take into consideration the number that are undiagnosed. Reports show that 70% of youth in the juvenile justice system have a diagnosable mental health condition. 70%. And we know that people of color living with a mental health condition also face even higher rates of criminal justice system involvement. There are many reasons why people living with mental health conditions end up wrapped up in these situations. Inability to access affordable mental health care, stigma, people not getting help early, which leads to conditions getting worse, arrest for low-level offenses, and a revolving door into the justice system. When people with mental illness end up in jails and prisons rather than receiving the mental health care they deserve, the outcomes can be devastating. Suicide is the leading cause of death in jails, and nearly two-thirds of people with mental illness in jails and prisons never receive mental health treatment. Here at NAMI, we know there is a better way forward. That's why we are leading efforts like our Reimagine Crisis Campaign to ensure that people experiencing mental health crisis can receive a mental health response rather than a law enforcement response to ensure that the 988 Suicide and Crisis Lifeline becomes a resource known in every household and to ensure that a robust mental health crisis response system is built out in every community across the country. And it's why we continue to advocate for legislation and practices that can help connect people to help rather than handcuffs. Our guest today, retired Justice Evelyn Stratton, is a national leader who is working tirelessly on reforming our justice system to address these and related issues. She was the first woman to be elected judge of the Franklin County Common Pleas Court, where she became known as the Velvet Hammer for her approach to sentencing in serious felony cases. Her success on the trial bench led to an appointment in 1996 to the Supreme Court of Ohio, where she was elected to a third term in 2008. In 2012, 
She left the bench to dedicate her time to ensuring that mental health services are provided to offenders and assisting veterans in the criminal justice system. In order to affect positive change in the lives of people whose mental illness has led to criminal activity, Justice Stratton created partnerships between the courts and the mental health system. She formed the Supreme Court of Ohio Advisory Committee on Mental Illness and the Courts, which includes mental health, law enforcement, and criminal justice professionals. Nationally, Justice Stratton is co-founder and former co-chair of the Judges Leadership Initiative, a professional association that supports cooperative mental health programs in the criminal justice system. And she has worked closely with NAMI Ohio and many peers and families to create positive change in our nation's justice system. Justice Stratton, we are all indebted to you for your tireless work and incredible leadership in this area. And we're so incredibly honored to have you here with us today. Thank you for making the decision to do this work. We're so incredibly appreciative. I have a set of questions for you, and um, we, we, we just appreciate what you do. But we want to start out by talking about how you got involved with this work. Uh, what led you to focus on the needs of people with mental illness who became involved in the justice system? Well, I kind of have to really start in my childhood. I was born in Thailand. My parents were missionaries. I lived most of my first 18 years partly in Thailand, and then I went to a mission-run boarding school in South Vietnam and uh, Malaysia when the South Vietnam War got too bad. I came to America when I was 18 to go to college by myself. My parents were still in Thailand. I had $500, and I wanted to be a nuclear physicist. A far cry from where I am. But eventually, I ended up in Ohio, and uh, uh, but through circumstances, that career didn't work out. And along the way, I decided I wanted to become a judge before I even went to law school. I tend to still have a very religious side. And I kind of always thought of that as my calling. So when I first went to law school, I wanted to be a judge. I never saw mental health issues in Thailand. We lived in a very small village. The temple really took care of everybody. Uh, when I went to college, I didn't see it, although I know it's very prevalent now. I didn't see it until I became a judge in the Common Pleas Court, which is a felony level court. And I saw it smack front and center. So many of my defendants had mental health and drug and alcohol issues. And at that time, the mental health system was not very involved in the court system. We had a little bit of involvement with the drug and alcohol. And I was just very frustrated knowing what to do with them. So I started writing letters to legislators and trying to figure out what to do. And then I ended up getting appointed and then elected to the Supreme Court. And I worked on a couple of other major projects in Ohio and nationally. And I had a gap of time and I said, I need to do something about this. And I heard of something called a mental health court. Sounded like a good idea. There were only six in the country at the time. I heard of something called CIT, crisis intervention teams. We were only had 100 officers trained in Ohio at the time. And I thought, well, this sounds like a much better way to deal with the situation. So I had I called a meeting and I looked at them and I said, I have no budget, no background, no training, no idea what I'm doing, no staff. The only thing I have is a big title and people come to my meetings. And that's literally how I started 30 years ago, and having no idea where it would take me or where it would lead to me, lead me. And uh, it's made it's just been a, a very rewarding journey. I think I think my missionary background probably informs a lot of it. But uh, I just felt like this this is this ended up being what I think God wanted me to do with the job because it gave me a big title to do this work. You know, um, this this is your life's work, and we're so glad that you did not become a nuclear phys physicist <laughs> because 
You've been able to help so many more individuals and families with this work that you've done over 30 years. So um, uh, the field of, 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 of science, their loss is our gain. So thank you. So yeah, I want to ask you, Judge, why is the role of, of, of judges so important in addressing the mental health needs of, of those who appear before them? Well, as, as many people know, we used to have a lot of people in the mental health hospitals and they decided... They were going to put them in the least restrictive environment. That was a very well-meaning goal, but there were some major problems with it. When they started closing down all the hospitals, they didn't create the least restrictive environment. And a lot of people who have mental health issues literally have a condition that I'm not going to try to pronounce because I always mispronounce it. That means they cannot recognize they have such a condition. They literally don't. So they're not going to even go to a mental health center because they don't think they have that condition. I had a, a family relative to the day he died. He was just entrepreneurial. He just had wonderful ideas, even though we know on the outside that they were not wonderful ideas. They were uh, uh, his uh, manic stage, but he never committed a crime. So we were never able to get him help. It was just such a tragedy. So when I saw this in the court, I thought, you know, I need to do something. And I didn't know what. And I found that because I had the power of the office to call a meeting, they came Local judges have the same power. They can call a meeting and everybody will come because the judge called the meeting. And then you can get them together and you can start talking about collaborating and partnering together. So the judges play that role of convener or collaborator. I'm not a mental health expert. I defer to the Department of Mental Health. I defer to the docs and all of my committees. I don't make mental health decisions, but I can get them to come to the table and work together. And that's what a judge in every single county can do. You know, you, you, you mentioned the convener and you've been such a, an incredible convener and you've helped lead a movement to engage other judges in implementing strategies that divert people with mental illness to care rather than imprisonment. How have you seen the approach shift among your peers on this issue over the course of your career? Well, I'm an eternal optimist, and uh, my, my partner from the day I started working on this was a Terry Russell who headed NAMI, Ohio. His son now is, is heading as Terry has retired for about the 20th time, not successfully, I should probably add. And uh, uh, so I had this, this first meeting and um, we had six, six in the country. We had two mental health courts in Ohio. We had 100 officers trained. And partnering with NAMI from the beginning was so crucial. You flash forward and today we have over 7,000 CIT officers trained. 3,000 ancillary like EMTs and firefighters and parks and rec. Where do people go and commit you know, suicide or a homeless or a person with mental illness? Uh, we started with seven drug courts that Chief Justice Moyer had championed. We now have 256 dockets of all sorts of you know, drug courts, mental health courts, uh, family drug courts, uh, veterans courts, etc., and then uh, we had some national partners like Council for State Governments that helped us on the national level start the, uh, the Judges Leadership Initiative. And we got grants to ask 10 other states to form a Supreme Court committee like I had put together. And so it just kind of grew and grew and grew and grew. And I have seen so much change. But all those changes mean that that has trickled down and affected the lives of the people involved in those changes. You know, it's it's incredible what you just shared in terms of over 7000 officers that are now trained and including, you know, going to multiple sectors within um, uh, within law enforcement, parks and recs uh, from seven 
uh, mental health courts to 256 dockets. I mean, congratulations. And then it's scaled. You've not only scaled it uh, in Ohio, but it's been scaled nationally. So, you know, uh, congratulations and thank you. You mentioned Terry and and we know like 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 you, it's about leadership and you and, and Terry are incredible and have been incredible leaders and partners. So um, you've developed a close connection with NAMI Ohio that continues to this day. Uh, can you tell us more about that collaboration and, and, and how it works? I forget how I first found out about Terry. All I know is that he came to my very first meeting and probably came to pretty much every other meeting I had ever since then, except for those brief periods where he tried to retire and then he would come back. And and it was so important because they have the advocacy. They have the ability to bring real people to the forefront to explain to all these legislators and policymakers, this is a life. This is a person. This is what they experience. And that element of the individual and how it affects them is so important in moving policy. I mean, how many bills do we have named after one incident, one person? That story can really change the the paradigm. But in, in Ohio, we are so blessed because Terry was just a relentless advocate and he ch- created chapters in county after county after county. It's not just the Ohio na- uh, NAMI, it's the county's NAMI, county NAMI. And now flash forward and we're doing these stepping up meetings in all these counties. We have 53 counties that we have are stepping up. I have Luke Russell present at every single one of those meetings and their co-partner in that county also present at those meetings. So everyone in the county knows what services they offer, knows what help they offer. I tell them when I have these meetings, my family took advantage of the Families to Families uh, program that you had to understand one of our family members. Couldn't get him to understand it, but you get the family to understand it and how to deal with them. So they have just been integral in in everything we have done because they bring that real live voice to, and sometimes persons with lived experience, because I hate the word consumer, persons with lived experience, sometimes it's hard for them to translate because they may be in in one of their crises or one of their episodes or whatever, but their family members can say, I watched this happen. I watched them deteriorate. They may say, I didn't deteriorate. You know, I was making all sorts of wonderful decisions. But the family saw it, and the family can translate that for the policymakers and the legislators and every, everybody else in leadership. So they've just been, they've been an invaluable uh, partner from day one, and I couldn't have done it, frankly, without them. That, that, yeah, thank you. And, and it is about partnerships. And, you know, um, as, as we look at your, your knowledge and experience, um, would you share how can other Anami state organizations get involved with judges in their states and communities to ensure people get access to mental health care? And what is the model you recommend that they consider? Well, first of all, if they can get their courts to establish specialty dockets or problem solving courts, whatever your county or your state calls them, those judges then tend to get involved and become a leader. That's really, really important. But sometimes it takes somebody to go visit a judge. Now, you can't go talk to a judge when you have a case in front of them. So you don't want to call the judge when you've got a family member in their court. But just get a group of your NAMI people. Say to the judge, we'd like to come and talk to you. We'd like to come and meet with you and explain what NAMI does and what role it has. And then the judge can then use them as a resource or use them as part of their team when they have a person in their court, or you can inspire the judge to start a court. Uh, Same with with CIT officers getting, I mean, our NAMIs are involved in all of our CIT trainings. They do these scenarios with them and help them to understand. 
But I didn't have a sheriff start the CIT. I didn't have a judge start the mental health court. It was often a probation officer or the line officer who had gone to a webinar or a seminar who went to the chief or went to the sheriff or went to the judge that I heard about this. I mean, I have a judge that was a prosecutor, became a judge, and he didn't want anything to do with that namby-pamby social service work stuff. And his probation officers kept coming to him and saying, okay, this is this person. This is what they're experiencing. This is the help they need. He ended up becoming one of our biggest champions of mental health courts because he got to see what effect it was having on the lives when he was a prosecutor. You know, that was not his job. So those people, anybody that is in the trenches can go and ask to talk to somebody and, and you, nothing ventured, nothing gained. If you don't ask them to have a meeting, they're never going to meet with you. So I would encourage them to go meet with a judge, meet with the sheriff, meet with the chief of police, uh, take some other allies with them, take a family member who's lived experience, take a, take a person who has gone through the system and sit down and talk to those people and get them involved. A lot of times they just don't ask. And judges are often considered unapproachable. You're not allowed to ex-party them. You're not allowed to go talk to them about a case on your own. But when they're not on a case, you they're fair game. And they have some of them have to run for office like they have to in Ohio. So they want to get involved with the community. Take advantage of that. Yeah, thank you for that. And, and it's, it's a, a point of leverage in terms of, uh, uh, NAMI, um, um, speaking with the, 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 asking for a meeting with a judge, uh, and, and it just having that executive conversation, telling, telling about what NAMI does. And, you know, we have another program at NAMI called Sharing Your Story with Law Enforcement. Um, and, and that often is done with the, by the family, uh, versus the, versus the individual because of what you just spoke to, judge. And, and, you know, judges, sheriffs, chiefs of police, uh, us, NAMI state organizations, uh, there is a model here. Uh, Judge Stratton just shared uh, a, a bit of that uh, with you. Specialty dockets, uh, problem-solving courts. So there's a lot here from the standpoint of what we can do and what we can build off of what Judge Stratton and uh, NAMI have done in Ohio. So as I'm sure you know, NAMI advocates are eager to use their voice to improve the lives of all people affected by mental illness. What do you consider the five most important things that advocates can do to lessen the current number of people with mental illness being arrested in our nation? First one was to try to get your county to do a CIT program. That is so effective in trying to keep them from getting arrested and diverting them to mental Ill- to mental health centers. And once they understand a mental illness, it changes their whole perspective. I've just seen officer after officer totally change their attitude because of the training. Go see your local judges. Go talk to your policymakers. You have a state representative. You have a state senator on the local level, on the national level. Start with your local level, level guy because or gal because they have to get elected and say, I want you to come down and see a mental health court or I want you to come down and see this center and see what life is like. And what, you know, I want you to go to a homeless camp with us and, and try to get them engaged in the individual lives of the people that they serve and help them to understand if you've got data, if you've got statistics, I mean, we have a, a infographic. We put these infographics, which are very simple charts to explain things. And one of the infographics I love is on housing. Housing. It's not, you don't think of it as a mental, mental illness issue. It's a housing one. We had a guy from Delaware County who over eight years had been arrested in a jail or in a prison a total of four to 500 days each. And over those eight years, he cycles, cycles out, never got better, and it cost the county $644,000 for one person. They finally got him in supportive housing with a robust team 
of support, which started with 30 people and now it's down to the two or three. In the last three years, he's not been rearrested. He's not been um, rehospitalized. He has a job. Those, if they had done that for those eight years, it would cost the county 244000 for supportive housing. So you multiply that by the person after first. Take data and show them. You know, maybe you you know you're you're looking at the fiscal purse. You're looking at the cost of the community. Oh, it's going to cost so much money. Look how much you save because you never add up the arrest, the appearance before the court, the emergency room. We have a formula. It's called making the business case to show the most expensive way is to not deal with it, and the most effective way financially and the most humane way is to deal with it. You know, making the business case. Uh, well, first of all, let me pause for a second. Justice Stratton, let me do a correction. I called you judge a few times. So let me do that uh, as just a justice. Well, it, it won't happen with me anymore. So my bad on that. But I want to come back to what you just shared in terms of making the business case. You just talked about uh, affordable housing and eight years and recidivism and that metric in terms of what the savings would have been or what the cost was and what that could have been invested in a different way. So it's, it's really having, having your data, uh, having your information. So uh, thank you for sharing that. And so, you know, it's, it's kind of like pause before you go, collect your information and make sure that you have your data and then, and then go. So uh, appreciate that as well. Uh, the, 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 um, uh, th- those those five are, are, are so important, and we appreciate you sharing those. As you know, in July of 2022, the 988 Suicide and Crisis Lifeline launched. What impacts, Justice Stratton, does 988 have or what impact could it have on these issues of, uh, you know, uh, what we're seeing right now in, in, in the system? Well, it's very new. There's funding stream issues. Different states are funding it differently. We have a very fractured 911 system, so trying to connect 988 to our 991 system is like very challenging. Um, so there's and then and then the problem is, you know, what do you do after you call whatever? And sometimes you really can't just have a person with mental health training go because there are some violent issues. You have to have someone, a police officer, preferably CIT go. So we're working through all of those. But what we're doing is trying to use practical experiences and say, okay, this is a problem. How do we fix it? Not, oh, just give it up. It's way too big a problem. Okay. Area codes. At first, it was tied to area codes to find them. My kids now live in Denver, California and have an Ohio area code. So you have to have a different way to try to trace them. Simple problems like that that you don't think of. But I think what the difference is going to be is sometimes people are reluctant to call 911 because they don't want the rest. They don't want their family, but they may feel desperate. But a lot of times those calls don't need a police response. A social worker, a person with mental health training may be adequate to come and respond to that condition. If they get to the condition and they figure out, eh, we really need some police backup, they can then call someone like a CIT officer, but they don't necessarily have to start there. And you get somebody to come and that can really uh, that doesn't have that stigma. And often if you take them to treatment, let's say you respond to the call, you take them to treatment. If you have a police car, you take them in a police car. It's very, very uh, emotionally difficult sometimes on these people. They have to enter a police car. If you take them in a car that you're safe enough that you can transport them in a regular car or some other vehicle, that just helps again with the destigmatization. So I think it's the start of a very important change. There are some things we're going to have to work on and work out 
but you know, I started with 100 CIT officers and we got what, almost 10,000. So it's it's going to happen. But I think it's going to be a sea change in how these responses are made. We have, but it's part of a whole crisis continuum. Someplace, somewhere to call. That's either 911 or CIT or 988. Someplace to go. We're the we're the victims of our own success in Ohio. We have the most trained officers, but we don't have enough places to take them. And they can't take them to an emergency room and sit for four hours because they got calls coming in, so they take them to jail. So we got to develop those crisis drop-off centers, so somewhere to take them and then somewhere to stay, a home. And you know, if you, if you just treat them and then put them back on the street under the bridge, you've got nowhere. So someplace to stay. And then we're adding one in Ohio, someplace to thrive, to give them good life, wholesome lives, lives with jobs, lives with human connections. And, and so... This is the continuum. It, 988 is just the the one piece of it. It's the whole continuum that we're working on in Ohio. Yeah, this is this is all about reimagining crisis response and reimagining that 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 life with lived experience and what it could look like. And that's a, a part of hope uh, and holding on to hope. So as we as we look at the world, uh, Justice Strat, it can be a difficult place, and sometimes it can be hard to hold on to hope. That's why each week we dedicate the last few minutes of our podcast to a special section called Hold On to Hope. Uh, Justice Stratton, sometimes the road to progress is slow and people involved with advocacy can get discouraged. Can you tell us what helps you hold on to hope? I think the most, some of the most moving moments I have to make me feel like I'm doing something worthwhile is to go to a graduation, a mental health court graduation, a veterans court graduation, I think probably the most moving one I went to was a catch court. A catch court was for prostitutes, women who are prostitutes who've been arrested. We had a prosecutor became a judge, looked at the data. The life expectancy was 35 years of age. Most of them started trafficking as children. And I went and did that graduation and this change in their lives, having a job, getting out from under the, the, the pimp, um, getting off drugs, getting their kids back. If you're getting discouraged and down, that is probably one of the most reaffirming things that you're doing something that makes a difference. Had a veteran at my first veterans court graduation I went to, he had gotten out of the Vietnam War, been an alcoholic for 40 some years, finally ended up in the court system. First time he had ever dried out, had gotten his life back. You talk about something that really, really encourages you. Go to one of those graduations and you will find lots and lots of examples of hope. Thank you. Thanks for sharing that. Um, uh, uh, Justice Stratton, building on that, what would you say to listeners um, um, who are hearing this podcast who feel like giving up? How can someone feel hopeful when everything feels so hopeless? Well, sometimes the best thing you can do is go try to help somebody else because people who are hopeless are inward. They're focusing on their problems. They're focusing on their ills. You've got a neighbor that's a shut-in that nobody ever goes and visits. You go visit them and you can see how much better your life is. Or go to a nursing home and talk to somebody. Or We had a group that, that took, decided to take on a veteran just to help him clean up his yard. They found out he was wheelchair-bound, couldn't even get out of the house. So they started building him you know, stairs. And then they started, before you knew it, they had embraced this life of this person who probably felt very hopeless trapped in his home. But if you're feeling hopeless, your best thing is to go out and do something for somebody else. I think that can bring you more satisfaction because now you're like, 
okay, I have value because I've helped this person. I do have, I have an ability to contribute. It's not just me focusing on myself because if you focus on yourself, you'll stay hopeless because you're, oh, you know, your life is so bad. I'm telling you, growing up overseas and seeing the poverty and seeing the war and seeing everything I grew up with, we live in one of the best countries. I don't care how bad you think things are in the United States and how you know friction there is and, and discord and left and right and all that stuff. You go to another country and see what they live like, and you'll come back hopeful that you're grateful you live in this absolutely wonderful country of opportunity. I mean, how could a missionary kid with $500 become a justice? Only in America. So there's lots of hope in this country, but get outside of yourself and go go help somebody else. And that'll be their best anecdote, in my opinion. Thank you. You got to believe and you just got to put one foot in, the, in front of the other and help others. Uh, now, in your personal and professional life, Justice Stratton, what inspires you to keep going? I love my work. I love it. When I was a justice, judge, trial lawyer, I was always dealing with conflict, somebody's problem, somebody's issue. I was either, a lot of the practice of law is making money or losing money, trying to keep you up. When I get with the people who do mental health work, they're trying to change lives. They're trying to make a difference in how somebody feels. They're often the least paid, the least appreciated, working with the most difficult. I often say to people, I feel kind of bad that my job, my job is really easy. I put meetings together. I get people to come. I get collaborations. The hard work is that person in the nursing home, turning that person over that has mental health issues, that's screaming and hollering. They don't know how to take care of. That's the hard, hard job. And so I got the easy job. They have the hard job. And so knowing if I can do something to give them resources or, or, or collaboration or, or tools or increase in pay, and make their lives better when they're doing the really tough work. That makes me feel really good about my role. You know, thank you. Um, um, we, you, you know, you, um, you, you, you've talked about the three words that we think about collective, the collective itself, collaboration and community. Uh, and and you, you also gave us that comparative analysis of, of, of how you grew up. And let's think about what really is here in these United States. So we can't thank you enough, uh, uh, one, for your leadership, the tone that you set and how you've executed and continue to execute and uh, and your commitment to these issues. And, and, and that, again, the word collaboration with NAMI and other groups uh, that uh, you're working to help. Uh, make a difference. So it's it's just fantastic. So we just want to thank you so very much. And uh, we want to end this by just sharing that this has been Hope Starts With Us, a podcast by NAMI, the National Alliance on Mental Illness. If you are looking for mental health resources, you're not alone. To connect with the NAMI helpline and find local resources, visit nami.org forward slash help. Text helpline to 62640 or dial 800-950- 6264 or NAMI, or if you are experiencing an immediate suicide, substance abuse, or mental health crisis, please call or text 988 to speak with a trained support specialist or visit 988lifeline.org. If you'd like to learn more about NAMI's advocacy work, visit nami.org forward slash advocacy, or to get involved with the Reimagine Crisis Campaign to ensure that people experiencing mental health crisis receive a mental health response rather than a law enforcement response, visit reimaginecrisis.org. Uh, thank you for being with us. And Justice Stratton, thank you so very much for your leadership. It is so very much appreciated. 
And thank you for NAMI to being, for being a partner from day one. <laughs>